Today's reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, starting with the first verse. Seeing, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted, so, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Good morning. This is our sermon series that we're taking up right now. We're calling it The Living Word. And uh, by the time we get to November... My hope that is we have a, and my intention is that we have a clearer understanding that we live our Christian faith uh, in a living relationship. That God is, like some people would say it this way, God is loose in the world, alive. And that we can't live the Christian faith simply from a set of principles or a list of uh, moral guidance. Uh, this is something that is lived in relationship with a living Savior. So we're calling it the living word, and we're uh, helping one another to grow in this understanding. We started by looking at Luke chapter 2 last week, where Jesus as a 12-year-old boy is left behind in the temple. Remember that text? And uh, his parents show up, and he says, you know, what's the big deal? And, And we mentioned in that study the concept of carrying on without him. Of course, his family, his parents, and those who were traveling with him and without him did that at that time. But for us, the question is, how have we carried on without him in our lives in general and in, even in our lives of faith? Uh, we mentioned last week that one of the key ways in which we do this is that we mistake our conscience, the voice in our head, for the voice of God. Mentioning that sometimes God can shape our conscience and our conscience can be a very good thing, but that it's not healthy to confuse that with a living Savior, Jesus Christ. We mentioned that the problem comes up because in his day, and we would assume in our day as well, Jesus confounded all of the people who had a clear sense of black and white and right and wrong. You know what I mean? He would walk in and heal somebody on the Sabbath and people who had knew just what, what is happening. Or he would care for people who were downtrodden and cast out. And even those who were cast out would say, 
what is he doing interested in us? He's the living word. And we have in some ways carried on without him. Today we look at Jesus' teaching. And it would be helpful for you to do a little bit of an English lesson here. And know that as soon as I say Jesus' teaching, you don't know what I'm saying, right? Because you don't know if I'm saying it is Jesus' teaching with no grammatical marks at all. Or whether I'm putting a little apostrophe after the S. Jesus' teaching. The teaching that belongs to Jesus. I mean both. Jesus as he is teaching, and Jesus in what he is teaching. And we have one key word for you today that I'd like you to have in your mind, and then in your life and practice as you walk, and your prayers as you walk from here today. And this is the word, contrast. The teaching of Jesus Christ, Jesus with the grammatical note, Jesus teaching, and Jesus with no no such notes, the teaching of Jesus is in contrast to the prevailing teaching of his day and, thanks be to God, the prevailing teaching of our day. Contrast. Much of teaching today, and this is a struggle for, uh, if you're in the academic realm at all, like uh, university, so not so much trade schools, but universities and other places as well, uh, there's, there's a struggle in teaching and learning because most teaching today has to do with how-to, or a great amount of teaching has to do with how-to. And the world in which we live thinks how-to is better. So you might have said things like this before. Well, what's the point in going to university if you can't get a job afterwards? Well, originally that was never the point of university. The point of university was to shape a person, make them think differently, make them see the world differently. Well, but what does it matter if they can't pay the bills? I mean, we're, we're, we're immersed in this now. And I think it's gone one way more than the other. We value the how-to more. Unfortunately, for those who think that way, Jesus' teaching, as it is in the scriptures, was much more, instead of how-to, was what is. Let me describe the world to you because you're living in a world that isn't reality. You're living according to the prevailing teaching of the day, and you need your eyes opened. So we're going to consider that together, and then we're going to share communion together. And I'll tell you in advance that we're doing communion a little bit differently than we sometimes do here. Uh, And we'll be asking people to walk up and receive communion. If you can't do that and would like to stay where you are, we'll have ushers as well. But the the sermon and the communion go together. We listen and we receive. So this text. Jesus will always tell you the truth. Uh, It seems kind of self-explanatory for me to say that, but the problem is that you and me, we listen to all other kinds of things that the world says is truth, and then we take Jesus' words and measure them against those things and think to ourselves, well, do, do his words make sense in this world in which I live? When I say Jesus will always tell you the truth, he's going to describe to you the world as it really is, and you'll start to see the distortions in the way in which we live without this understanding. John 14, 6, you know it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, by me. He can't speak words other than words that are full of grace and truth and life. So if you look at this text, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, the Beatitudes, what's your first response to it? I mean, your first response might be, oh, I've heard this before. But if you listen to the words, blessed are those 
right? Blessed are the poor or the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. In other words, would be the small people that some think are insignificant. And, and corresponding, they're not, they're not rewards because these blessings are not things that you achieve. They are things that are pronounced. You are blessed in this circumstance. And here's the nature of the blessing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So the question is, what's your response to this? Well, I think the response is, let's be honest, these things don't work. And nobody believes them. Just try. Bring these out to your friends and family and say, you know what real blessing is? It's when you're poor and poor in spirit and when you're mourning. And and they're going to say, what are you talking about? So what's Jesus doing here? goes up, sits down on this hill. This, this is the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of it. And it says in the second verse, he opened his mouth and he taught them. And with what he is saying, this is so important for me as I listen to this text. I have to read the text and take it in. And in some ways, maybe if you're like me, but I think it's good for all of us. You also have to feel it a little bit. Jesus sits down and he opens his mouth and he taught them and right away I can tell something that's happening. I know it because I feel it in myself too. With what he is saying and how he is saying it, he's speaking to this crowd, this gathering of people and the first thing that the people know before they even analyze the words and think, what on earth is he talking about? None of those things are true. The first thing they know is this, that they are not alone. They are not alone you know the difference when you hear a teacher, a lecturer, a professor, and they're a, mi- a thousand miles away from you? They know their stuff, but they might as well have an empty room full of, full of nothing. Someone who has... And, then the, and the neurophysiology of the... Right? And, and moral teachers can do that as well. Here's the six things we need to know. And then they can look at you. They can even... Sometimes they can push you further away. When Jesus opens his mouth to teach these people and us, the first thing they realize is that they are not alone. He is with them. Nobody else has valued them. Everybody else is telling them what they need to change, including religious institutions. We teach the same way today. I call it, there's an authoritarianism with this, right? So sometimes, we don't have this much anymore. Some of you may have experienced this in the past, where a preacher or a minister or a teacher gets up and... Sometimes you say, like, I wish we had more of that. You know what I mean? And they kind of, you people... Right? Thank you, Lawrence. And I... Now it's done in this way. I've told you this before. Now it's done in this way. Same thing, but just friendly, where people do this. So here's the minister. You ready? Friends, now you know I'm disappointed in you. Now you know there is a distance between me and you, and I'm about to tell you what's wrong with you. Right? Now the trouble is, you guys eat this stuff up. Places are full. Because we we have a hard time listening. We want somebody to tell us what to think. Jesus opens his mouth, and the people know right away they're not alone. It's different. 
And then Jesus really ups the ante because he takes all of the teaching that these people would have heard before and assumes it and changes it, adds to it, really, completes it. If you look at the structure of the sermon in verses 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, I don't have all this memorized, I've got it written down. 43, it follows this structure where Jesus says to the people, look, now that he's with them and they're with him, he says, look, you've heard it said, but I say to you, right? He's not throwing out the law and what religious teachers have taught. He's just telling them what it really has always meant. You have heard it say, you've heard it said, don't kill, but I say to you, He'll teach about divorce in this way. And many other things in the Sermon on the Mount. And that structure exists in this introductory part to the sermon called the Beatitudes. It's just not as explicit. But Jesus takes all of the things that you have heard said, and he offers a contrast to that. So Jesus knows that the world considers success and blessing and virtue. These are the wonderful things. This is what you want. But he starts off with this jarring, but beautiful, and it is beautiful. These are the Beatitudes. Same word. This jarring, but beautiful description of the way that the world actually is if people had the spiritual eyes to see it. And it's not the way that you've heard it to be, and it's not the way that you judge yourself by and the world and how you think other people are thinking of you. And our churches, they're full of this, maybe not as much as other places, but it's here as well, that we assume that the one we look up to is the one who is the most successful in the eyes of the world. I sometimes pray, and don't worry about this, and I'm not going to tell you who, but I pray for spiritual eyes to see a congregation because you think, well, this person looks like a person of stature, and this person looks really small, and this person looks really healthy, and this person looks really sick. And I'll say, Lord Jesus Christ, give me the eyes to see out here. I was talking about this with um, John and Chris Boyle yesterday. I was visiting them. And uh, I won't name who, but we, we were mentioning one faithful woman of prayer in our church. And uh, this person's older and and has some health struggles. And I said, when I do this, when I pray for those kinds of eyes all of a sudden she just becomes this mountain. It's a jarring and beautiful description of the way the world actually is. Some of you saw the news story this week. Just put this, you don't need the volume. You can leave the volume off. But do you know what this story is about, this news story? This is that you've been trying to get fat out of your diet for like 40 years. And one of the reasons is that 40 years ago there was a study done at Harvard University that came up with this truth. The worst possible thing you can eat is saturated fat. The trouble is that study was paid for, and now they've got the documents to prove it, by the sugar industry. And now, 40 years later, they're saying, well, maybe fat's not as bad as we thought, and sugar is the worst. I bring this study up to you because these people listening to Jesus had granted authority in some ways to the loud voices of their time. In that time, it was religious leaders. Now it's, you know, money and and financial success. But they had said, well, this is the way people told us the world is. And then Jesus comes along and says the truth. You know, it's not really the way you were thinking. Jesus is the truth teller in our world, always has been the truth teller, and always will be. 
But please, as I say that, see what's on the screen as well. Because in churches, we sometimes say Jesus is the truth teller, and you think that that means you know, he's going to get you now. He's out to get you. Jesus is the truth teller who will show us real and abundant life. And this happens even with these Beatitudes. Before Jesus demands anything of us, he blesses us. He blesses these crowds. He pronounces blessings upon them. Divine blessing precedes human doing. Look at the major themes in Scripture. So these are a little bit more for the Bible students here, but you'll, you'll get it even if you're not. Creation, what happens first? Blessing. Redemption, what happens before we say yes to Jesus? God sends his son. Vocation, the fact that we don't live meaningless lives without purpose. That God says you are part, you can participate in showing my love in this world. He blesses us with vocation before we're even aware that we're called. The blessing precedes the human doing. In this text, there are eight blessings. And the blessings are statements of the way things actually are, but there are also things that Jesus is, in a sense, doing as he's speaking them. So he's saying, you are blessed when, but he's also saying, I'm pronouncing this blessing on you in this circumstance. Eight blessings and two you are's. And we're not doing a, a deep analysis of this this morning. It's to consider how is Jesus teaching different than the teaching of the world. Here's the blessings. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek or the small, those who hunger and thirst for goodness and righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted and mocked for faith, for righteousness. And then two you are's. This is something that we need to hear more of in our lives because you, if you live according to the prevailing teaching of the world, you forget who you are. And these people had. I mean, they didn't think they were worth very much. And Jesus, after pronouncing all these blessings, guess, look what he does. He says, you, now I want, I wish, I don't have time and you get so mad at me and church would be so long. And plus you'd be creeped out by it if I went through and said every one of your names and said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's what Jesus does at the end of this introductory part to his sermon. The blessings have promises with them. These aren't properly understood as rewards, as I said, but natural consequences of this state. The poor in spirit. What do you know about the poor? Because in another part where this sermon, in in another gospel, the in spirit part isn't there. Christians like us don't like that. Like it it says, blessed are the poor. And then we're like, "Uh uh-oh. Because we're all rich. Now, you might not believe that living around here, but compared to the rest of the world, it's true. And he says something like, blessed are the poor. First of all, that's jarring to us. And then he gives the natural consequence of this kind of poverty, poor or poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor. What do the poor get in our world? What do the poor get in our world? I mean, in the end, nothing. Jesus says they're going to get heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. What do, what do you get when you're mourning in our world? Now, I'm not talking just about character development, because you could answer that back to me. But I mean, what, what do you get from it? The answer is you get to be alone, because pain is very lonely. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek or the small. 
the meek and the small just look at whatever it is, the financial world, the sports world, the political world. Blessed are the meek, the small, and we say that can't be true. You can take any of these things. You could take blessed are the merciful and put it over political campaigns, and it would make no sense in most cases. In most. Blessed are the meek or the small. What do the meek and the small get in our world? Again, nothing. What do they get in Jesus' kingdom? The whole earth. We are blessed in this teaching in our inadequacy, not in our achievement and in our virtue. But I, even speaking to you, oh, friends, as I shake my head, I don't think you believe this. We are blessed in our inadequacies. Now, as soon as I say that, doesn't that make you feel a little more freedom? You mean it's okay that I don't feel good all the time? Yeah. So what's the contrast? Not to advertise the movie, because it's probably deeply sacrilegious. I haven't watched it for years. But there's a Monty Python movie where there's a Sermon on the Mount scene. Nicola knows it. Good British background. Um, and uh, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and there's a little bit of a joke on how there's no amplification, there's no microphones and speakers, and so people are standing around, and they see him sitting on the hill in the distance, but they can't really hear him. And so he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Remember this part? Of course Nicola does. And they, and, and somebody says, what did he say? And then the other one says, he said, blessed are the cheesemakers. And then some, and I'll get the text, I'll get the story wrong, but so, well, what's so good about the cheesemakers? And then a fight starts, right? The reason I tell you the story is, is really this idea of people saying, what on earth is he saying? Furrowing up their brow and saying, he can't have said that. Because even though not to hold the comedy of the scene, but to hold that contrast of the scene. The first contrast in Jesus' teaching is a contrast of content. There is this reversal. The reversal is on who is blessed. In our world, it's the rich and the loud and the big that are blessed. In the religious world of Jesus' day, it would be the morally upstanding and the good and the people who who don't have many problems either, certainly not some health problems because that would be considered in that day maybe a curse from God. Right? So Jesus offers a contrast in teaching, saying in these Beatitudes, you're going to have to wrestle with this, that it's the poor and the mourning and the little who are blessed. So if you take his day and you consider one of these uh, people battling sickness or with a chronic illness... So take a disease that was around in his day. If you read scripture, you'll come across this, the disease of leprosy. Sometimes the word used for leprosy is just general skin diseases, but sometimes it's leprosy. We know now that leprosy is a disease that prevents you from feeling pain. So that in some parts of the world, particularly developing countries, uh, even animals might eat away at your skin and these kinds of things, and you won't know it because you can't feel it. And so you're, you, you, it looks like your body's wasting away. In that day, what was the prevailing teaching religiously about lepers? It was easy. They had to walk through the streets, wearing at times and at other times saying, sometimes both, what was the word? 
Unclean, unclean, unclean. What did it mean? It meant this disease at that time they thought might be contagious, but the real contagion was badness. In other words, the curse was not the disease itself, which is bad enough, but the curse was that the religious teachers were teaching this is a curse from God because this person has done something terrible. Now, you can draw all kinds of things to parallels of our day. They're still around. And what does Jesus do with lepers? Touches them. Cares for them. Heals them. And pronounces them blessed. What a contrast. The contrast holds today to say, state it in the, in the opposite way. That's a negative way of understanding it. There's a positive way of understanding the contrast. That is what the world says positively rather than negatively. So negative is that person's bad. Positive is the way of saying, well, here's what's good. So if you go home this afternoon and you watch football, which I call now watching ads with a little, little football in between. It really has become that. It's hard to watch. I recommend recording things like that from now on. And then, you know, go do the dishes. Get some stuff done around the house. Maybe not on this. Whatever. But it's mostly ads with some sports in between. I guarantee you that if you watch for more than five minutes, you will see an ad that pronounces blessing. That says, in this world, this is who is blessed. And here's what it is. It's probably going to be a car ad for probably an expensive car. And it's going to say this. It's going to give a little background into the driver. You might not even see them. And the ad is going to say, this person deserves this car. Or more directly, you have achieved this level. You deserve this luxury item. A word for that is successism. And that's our prevailing teaching in the world today. That those who have succeeded in the ways that the world measures are more worthy of consideration and we should listen to them more than we listen to other people. That's successism. What it means is that we then take those people and we may, in some ways, I mean, there's even one, I think it's for Mercedes or something, I couldn't find it, where it's got like voiceovers of a, of a man walking into a meeting and he's made partner at some firm or something like that, and, but the ad itself is just the car driving. And, so, and, and then there's a banquet in his honor or something, and, but the real reward is he gets to drive on the open road in this M-Class or whatever it is. Person of the year. Jesus seems to be, and I'm wrestling with this. It's okay if you do. Jesus seems to be saying that the guy that I rode my bike by two days ago, lying on the hill by near um, uh, Hastings and Cassiar there, I saw his cart before I saw him, and his cart was beautiful. I mean, it had colorful slogans and things all over it. And I thought, where's the guy? And then it was always lying on the ground. He had a big beard, and he was kind of resting there. He seemed fine. He doesn't seem like he was like in distress of any kind. But... I, I thought to myself as I considered this, do you mean, Jesus, that there'd be a banquet in his honor? Well, here's the Beatitudes. But there's a big contrast in the content. But secondly, and just as importantly, there's a contrast in the, in the character of the teacher. Look at the end of the sermon. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you go to chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. It says, the people were astonished. He doesn't teach like the scribes, the religious leaders, the experts. He has real authority. The religious leaders, as we mentioned before, had more of a top-down way of speaking, many of them, maybe most of them. You listen to us. 
and they, the people they're speaking to need to get with the program. I've got the knowledge you need to have. Jesus, by contrast, shows us the way things are, and he is with us. I think of the words of a Mumford and Sons song, and they're stealing it from somewhere else, but where they sing, lend me your eyes, I can change what you see. Would you lend Jesus your eyes, and how differently would you see the world? It's the character of the teacher is different. He's not teaching a, a seminar, Seven Steps to Financial Freedom. I mean, the terrible possibility is that he's teaching a seminar, Seven Ways to Lose It All. Nobody's going. But that's the Beatitudes. Jesus does this thing in his character and the teaching. He does away with so many of the divisions that the world states are important. I wanna, I'll come back to this in, in future sermons. But please understand in your Christian, in your Christian way of seeing the world, because you're told something else, and, and church at its worst makes a mistake here. You're told that, that the church divides and the world unites. Right? But that's not the truth. The truth is that the world is constantly dividing people. Rich, poor, successful, unsuccessful, worthy, unworthy. You know, all these divisions. Jesus, in his character, in the teaching, has done this to these people who've come to hear him. No division. Even if you're poor in spirit. Even if you're mourning. And the church is at its best when it doesn't divide. The problem is the church sometimes becomes better at dividing than the world does. Right? Condemned, uncondemned, acceptable, unacceptable, in, out. Jesus' character is something different than that. And finally, the last point of contrast, it is here. Why isn't this moving? Can you move it for me somewhere? Or not? Uh, The last point of contrast is the conclusion. Thank you. What's the goal of this teaching? It's the why. What for? Teaching then, the why, and this is making it very basic, was to reach some kind of acceptability before God. Here's the things you need to do, to change. I think, and again, it's, it's cliched and basic, but I think there's truth in it, that the prevailing teaching in our world right now is that the end of these things is some kind of financial security and independence. So that we mentioned it last week, when somebody says you have a, a child who's 18, 19, or a child who's 40, and they say, how is so-and-so doing? Uh, m- often they mean, you know, how are they doing in terms of school or money or career? How do you know that you've made it? Then it was kind of a moral worthiness, and now it's a financial independence. Jesus understands the prevailing teaching of his day, but in his conclusion, he's going to do this absolutely beautiful thing as he gathers the people. He's going to say, he's so compassionate, isn't he, in his teaching? So he's pronounced all these blessings. He's told people the way the world actually is. And then he looks out again and he sees them. He sees them all as people. And he says these two things. It's like I could say it to you. Oh, I wish you knew who you were. I wish you knew who you were. That's the fundamental Christian religious problem, spiritual problem in our lives. It's not even sin. Sin's a big problem. But the first one is that we forgot, we've forgotten who we are. 
And Jesus looks at these people and he says, in their brokenness, in their humility, in their mourning, you, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So make your list of the people who changed the world. Who are they? Please, how many people in their head had Steve Jobs? Oh, Lord, save us. You know who's on Jesus' list of people who changed the world? These broken down people listening to him that day. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. When we see ourselves as not powerful or successful, this can, this can be a major catalyst for depression in our culture when we think, well, I haven't made it, so what good am I? Right then, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. In your inadequacy, as you trust in him, you, too old, too sick, not smart enough, not rich enough. And there's a word for this. And if you don't understand it, I'm sorry, forgive me, but I need to make things understandable and we all need to learn a bit more too. The word for this is vocation. Vocation, and it's a beautiful word. It means you have purpose. It means you are needed and that you matter. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And your vocation in Christ is to witness to this love of Jesus Christ in the world. I started to tell you, and I'll finish it now, a story about my friend Henry at SAS. St. Andrew St. Stephen's. He's been an elder there for 54 years, and I worked there for a couple years. I got to know Henry pretty quickly, and Henry's about as Presbyterian as they come. And what that means is there's a place for everything. Everything has a place. Everything has an order, right? I mean, talk about committees and meetings and policy. And Henry was is the kind of guy who would say things like, and I mean, these words are just funny to me, but to him they're serious. Henry would say things like, moderator, point of order. I think that's funny, just those words together. But I knew, and I met Henry, and I knew when he says them, he means them. He knew all the policies and everything else of the church. 54 years, still an elder. And if you didn't know Henry, you'd you'd go like this, ah, all policy all the time. But if you spent even five minutes getting to know him, you'd discover his passionate faith in Jesus Christ, his love for God, and his love for people. So I told you, I went to see Henry recently because I found out that he has cancer. And I told you that when I visited him, it was with his wife, Leola, in their living room. And Leola is so small that if she got any smaller, she might just disappear. But she's powerful. And we sat together, and he did the first thing that people always do in these kinds of circumstances. He gave me the medical update first. Well, I went to the doctor a couple days ago, and it doesn't look good. It's not just in my throat anymore. He said the cancer, it spread to my lungs and my liver. And I don't have long. He told me that he didn't want me to pray for his healing. He was open to it, to healing. 
But he just trusted in God. And then he told me, and this is why I have the actual words. This is why I wanted to retell this story. He told me about a time 66 years earlier, 66 years ago now, when he was on a boat coming from Europe. He was a young man, and he remembers standing on that boat, looking out at the water. And he remembers the hymn that was in his head. And he started singing in his living room, and he was singing it in Dutch. And then he was gracious, and he realized, I don't understand a word he's saying. And he translated it for me right then and there. And these are the words. Regardless what the future bring, I am guided by God's hand. So in faith and trust, I cast my eyes upon that faraway foreign land. And he said to me, and he testified in his church, he said, I'm not afraid. As God has been with me in my life, so he will be with me in my death. Do you know what else he was saying? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I journaled after I met with Henry. I sat in the car and I cried. But it's joy. The world is going to miss people like him. So there's tears of sadness. But the joy is this faith that we share. I sat in my car and I cried. But I also had in my mind this. Henry, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's our faith. And this world desperately needs it. So how are we to respond? Firstly, listen to Jesus. He taught, read the Gospels particularly, but all of the Bible. But don't ever read the Bible in opposition to Jesus, please. There's too much of that going on where we read the Bible as if Jesus is kind of secondary. The Bible is what really saves us and Jesus is part of it. That's not Christian teaching. Christian teaching is that you don't understand the whole of the Bible without the living word. So the good way to think of this is that the Bible is the word about the word. Always. And if you don't read it that way, you're reading something different. But be taught by Jesus Christ. Secondly, check your values. Are you living according to Jesus or according to the prevailing teaching in the world? Ask yourself and all the things that you're, that you're worried about, who is this important to? And then thirdly, receive. If you've never received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we pray that you would do that. You can do that by going to the back here. You can ask myself or many others here and simply say, yes, Lord Jesus Christ, I give my life to you. I trust in you. But the receiving doesn't stop when you become a Christian. We always receive. That's why as we gather for communion in just a couple of minutes, this is acting out what we just considered in teaching. That we are blessed in our inadequacies. That we were reminded again as we've, as we've gathered as a people here in this place what it is that allows us to live in fullness of life in this world. We take the bread we receive. We take the cup. Jesus' blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We declare our faith in him. Let me pray. So I'm going to do in my prayer so you know I'm going to pray uh, some prayers of intercession. I'm also going to pray um, for the communion, and I'm going to pray for the offering as well. well. We'll receive the communion first, and then after you go back and sit down, those who receive in, in your seats, then the ushers will take the offering after the time of communion.
If you're unable to come to the front, uh, then we do have an usher who will go, I think it's Wilma, who will go and uh, bring the communion to you. So you don't, you don't have to walk here. Sometimes it's just nice to, to do these things a little bit different. It can open our minds in different ways to what's happening. And I think the act of walking up to receive just feels different than somebody passing to you in a row, right? And so we have two elders and two people from the youth group who are going to serve you this morning. And so you'll walk up and you'll receive on one of two sides. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you thanking you for your goodness in our lives. We confess our sins before you. We have done things we ought not to have done, and we've left undone things that we should have done. Forgive us our sins and let us accept the salvation, Jesus Christ, that is in you, and help us strive and long to serve you and to live out the reality of your love in this world. We pray for those in need in our community. We pray for those governing over us at the municipal and provincial and federal levels. We pray for leaders around the world that they would act in accordance with your word. We pray for those in our congregation in need, in sickness, awaiting appointments, diagnosis. We continue to pray for Phoebe Jean and for Tara. We pray for those who are facing uh, financial difficulty or the strains of, of the pressure of living in this community. We pray for Corrine as she continues to seek a place to live. We pray for Daniel as he ministers so far from here. And we pray for your church, our church and your church on the whole North Shore. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We pray for the offering that will be taken in a few minutes. We pray that you would use it uh, for your kingdom's sake, that we would know and others would know of the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we pray for this communion. Lord Jesus, we know that on the night you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it. And you said, this is my body. If we ever want to hear those beatitudes lived out, it's in you. It's in you. This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. As we receive this communion, may we trust in you. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.